Well, as you, most all of you know, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and uh, it's really been an exciting time as uh, we've just seen the church grow and we've seen it uh, expand. Uh, we've seen the, the, the in fact, the expansion of the church in the book of Acts is faster than any time in history. Uh, up to that point, it was, of course, Israel up to that point, but then at that point, really, it just took off. Acts chapter 1, 120 people, and then in Acts chapter 2, we see 3,000 people in one day. That's like a 3,000% increase just in one day, just the church just grew, and it, and it just exploded. The very last verse of Acts chapter 2, we read that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Just that means every day God was adding to their number. There was not a day in which one wasn't saved. But there, there was a day, today 12 were saved. And, and, and the next day another 8 were saved. And the next day there were 25 were brought in. And the next day there were 3. And the next day there were 12. And on and on. Day by day just continuing to grow and grow. We saw scores of people repenting from their sins and trusting in Christ for forgiveness. Just every day. It was the Lord's doing. Acts 2 verse 47 the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 4, we have north of 4,000 people. Because 4,000 is the number that's given in Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, but that's just the men who were believing. It doesn't count the women, doesn't count uh, the, the young people who were believing either. It just, it just seemed like it was just growing. It was 5,000, maybe it's more, maybe it's 8,000, maybe there's 10,000. We, we don't know, many thousands and it almost seems as if, um, like, everyone who heard the word believed is what it sort of seemed like. So listen to what Acts chapter 4, verse 4 says. Many of those who had heard the word believed. I mean, in our day, can you say that many of those of you who have spoken to about Jesus have believed? Uh, in my experience, it's been few. It's been way few. It's been minuscule. We read this today, and it's almost like, uh, minuscule amounts of those who have heard the word have believed. But, you know, the, and there were just things operating back then. There's the Holy Spirit was, uh, w- was working in those days. The, the message of the gospel was new. It was, it was fresh. The time was right. It was a transition from Israel to the fulfillment of the Messiah and all these people coming into the church. But it was unlike our day. In fact, we had an illustration of this yesterday. Savannah and I were out for our, our daily walk um, which allows us really to touch base with each other in our lives. And, and as we were walking along, we saw this older woman walking her dog. She's maybe in her 60s or so. Um, she's out walking just her, her, little, her little yappy dog. And as we were kind of walking, we, we walked faster than she does. And we kind of overtook her. And we exchanged pleasantries. She said, uh, how are you? And I'm fine. How are you? Kind of back and forth. And after a moment's pause, just kind of trying to create some conversation, uh, I said, well, we're solving life's problems, is what I said. And um, she said, well, when you figure out, let me know. I mean, that's kind of a topical thing, right? Typical thing, when you, when you figured it all out. And, and so then I, I talked about, well, we all have problems, right? We have little problems. You have little problems, right? The world has big problems. And, and I'm just thankful that Jesus will come and solve all of our problems. And, and at that point, she said, well, what did you say? Like, she couldn't quite perspective of what I said. I said, I'm just thankful for Jesus in our problems that we have him. And she said, and no doubt, right, Avon, she said, oh, bring the Bible into it, huh? It's kind of like took us aback. Like she, maybe she had some bad experience before or I, I, I'm not exactly sure. There was a little bit of silence there. 
Um, and then so I, I just kind of continued on a little bit. It says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just thankful for Jesus because my problem, I can't solve my problems by myself. I need someone bigger who can, and I know Jesus can. I'm thankful for that. And so then we got enough distance, and we were on, and we were quiet for a while until we continued our, our conversation. Um, but that's the sort of hostility that we face. And maybe some people won't quite say it like that. Oh, you bring the Bible into it, huh? And she was just having none of it. Uh, but not so in the early portion of the book of Acts. We see just continued growth. By chapter four, 5 and verse 14, we read this. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. People kept just like pouring into the church. And Acts really is a demonstration how Jesus is fulfilling his promise like we looked last week at, at his promise to build his church. And it's been an exciting story in recent months we've been looking at. But, but not all has gone well. So, so the graph doesn't look like this, like it's whoop, like, like up. There, there have been some hiccups a- along the way. There have been some forces um, that were trying to stop the spread of the gospel and stop the spread of the church. Uh, the first opposition came was from the religious authorities in John chapter 4. They imprisoned Peter and John, put them in jail where they spent a night for preaching the gospel. And when they were released, they were told not to speak anymore in that name. Well, they did. And great power was upon them, giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, and though maybe it stopped for a little bit, maybe for a night, things stopped. But then after that, things uh, just continued to go as great grace was upon the church, great love was upon the church. People were selling their possessions to meet the needs of those in the church. Uh, but again, that all was not good. The second hindrance to the growth of the church came from within the church. First of all, there was this, this opposition from the religious authorities. They arrested them, or warned them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, shutting down free speech, if you will. The, the second hindrance came from within the church, greed and hypocrisy, with Ananias and Sapphira selling a piece of property and pretending to give it all to look holy and righteous, even though they kept back some for themselves. There's this whole pretending. Right? They were greedy to keep it. They were hypocrites in saying that they did give it all, trying to put on this religious show of generosity. They, they wanted to be seen of others as full of grace and, and full of Jesus, but they were frauds. And uh, they died there on the spot when Peter confronted him. And, and uh, listen, through this hypocrisy, the church could have faced a disaster. I mean, I, I just know that just how, how that happens. You have a church, you have people sinning in the church, and the church can crumble, but it, it didn't. Rather, the people held them in high esteem because of how the apostles tell, dealt with the situation. But that didn't stop the, oppression, the opposition of the church either. It continued on with heightened persecution. In Acts chapter 5 that we looked at last week, all the apostles spent a night in jail for preaching the gospel. And, and when, when uh, they came before the Sanhedrin, and before they were released, they were beaten and warned not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Well, they did. And God continued to grow His church. In Acts chapter 5 verse 42 which where we ended last week, it says this, every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It's a context of our passage this morning. So if you haven't done so already, Acts chapter 6 is where we're going to be looking at today. It comes on the backdrop of a, a wildly successful church life when people are coming to, to faith and grows. The, the, the church was ever increasing and that's where it begins here. Chapter 6 verse 1, now in those days, Yet, like all of church life, there are problems. And one of the things I appreciate about the book of Acts is it doesn't hide the problems. It doesn't, doesn't sweep them under the rug. 
right? but exposes them and explains how the apostles worked through them. Uh, my message this morning is entitled, A Problem in the Early Church. So let's, let's read about the problem and subsequent solution. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Now in these days when the apostles were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation, pulled the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This passage is so typical of, of everything that came upon the early church, right? That there was, there was this problem in the church, but the apostles dealt with it, and in the end, it turns out well. In fact, chapter 6, verse 7 explains how well it turns out. The, the, the word of God increased, the disciples increased, and, and all went well. But that was at the end of the matter. Let's look at the matter itself, um, the issue at hand, which I am simply calling the problem. My first point, verse 1, the problem. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. It says here, a complaint arose in the early church. Literally, there came to be a grumbling. And I'm so thankful that we don't have to worry about grumbling because we don't know anything about grumbling. <laughs> yes? We know a lot about grumbling. Grumbling is typical for the church today. The church can almost be seen as a, a grumble factory. People don't like something's going on, so they grumble. Didn't like the sermon, so they grumble. There's something wrong with the slides in the morning, and they, they grumble. The drums were too loud. We sang the wrong songs. The service is too long, and they grumble. Maybe the sign outside isn't quite right, or maybe there's still ice on the parking lot, or maybe it's too cold in the building, or, or maybe there's no coffee, or maybe there's too much coffee, a coffee stain on, on one of the seats, or maybe kids are running around the building yet again, and there's grumbling and complaining. I mean, I get it, right, when you gather the same group of people week after week, for month after month, and year after year. It's easy to be discouraged by things not going on. Not everything always goes right, and, and there's lots to grumble about for sure. Um, but somehow the church becomes and is a Petri dish for, for grumbling. In fact, I, uh, I saw this cartoon here this week of uh, before you get into the church auditorium, right? You got your complaint window right along the way that you can just register your complaints before you get into worship. Um, that's how it feels. Um, sometimes as a pastor is, is so many complaints. Uh, here, here's this pastor, right? He, he's looking up at the clouds. And what does the pastor see in the clouds but faces of people in his congregation? He says, oh, there's Mr., Mrs. Cheeseter complaining about my hymn selections. 
Oh, that cloud over there looks like Mr. Barkwell complaining about the budget for the youth ministry. That other cloud looks like Mrs. Lintcatcher complaining about the women's fellowship meeting. And I think about anybody in the church, I've heard more grumbling about the church than anybody else. I mean, re- really because, um, really it's the only way, one of the only ways in order to help the church, right, improve. There's some issue and oftentimes it comes with this complaint or a, or a grumble and uh, um, then you come and, and often that comes to me and there needs to be some sort of change and we kind of work through that. Uh, I've learned how to deal with that over the years, but I just encourage you, the best way to be a good grumbler or good someone who brings complaint is, um, is to have a reputation for being an encourager far more than a complainer. So I, I want to read for you a little bit from Sam Crabtree's excellent book, Practicing Affirmation. Um, I've, I've quoted from this book before. I know some of you may have, may have read it. But he just speaks about how important it is to build up with others and encourage people. And because you, you want to lift them up. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment. That may give grace to those who hear. And, and just that's what we are called to do. We're called to encourage one another and build one another up. Even as we're dealing with that in our own house, just trying to do that as much as we can through our failures. But he says this, the importance of affirmation does not entirely remove the place of correction. We're going to live with sinners. We're going to marry a sinner. Our children will be sinners. Our parents are sinners. The people around us are going to pull bonehead moves, and in it, love will sometimes be our best place to point them out. They are going to smell bad, and it's our job to inform them before they go out in public. They will burn the burgers. They will do something that is mediocre that will hurt the team or, or waste the household finances or something else regrettable. But love does not look first always to the ways to correct. Think of it this way. Give so many affirmations as a pattern, a way of life, that you gain a reputation for it. You're known for your affirmations and not your criticisms, your corrections. In Acts 4 and verse 36, Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. What's my reputation? Am I Mr. Krabby Pants? Am I old lady battle axe? Am I Miss Nitpick? We should unleash so many affirmations that those around us lose track. So it's not a matter of mathematical precision. It's, it's living more like romance than rocket science. Less like knitting with its relentless counting, knit one, pearl two. More like the weather. How much rain is enough? Well, that depends on how dry it's been. And what are you going to try to grow, a watermelon or a cactus? According to one perspective, it takes more than one positive to overcome a negative. You hurt my feelings, do something nice for me. Are we okay? Not usually yet. The bean counters are telling us that a healthy state in a system actually requires three to five positive events to overcome one negative event. And so just to encourage you, just here in the the midst of, uh, of grumbling and complaining, or you see something, want to see something change, be a part of the solution, um, but be so known for, for affirming that uh, the complaint comes in context. Well, anyway, there was a, a complaint in the early church, and, and the apostles took it well. They see that there was this complaint about widows being neglected in their daily distribution of food. And, and apparently in the early church, they took on the role of caring for widows. There was no welfare in the days of the apostles. There were no food stamps in the way of the apostles or, or food cards. 
Um, there, were, there were no governmental agencies that you could turn to and receive help. No social security for those who had no other form of income. Most of the caring for the older folk in the community fell upon families. Um, those without family support, however, were in desperate situation. They had no one to help. They had nowhere to go, nowhere to turn. And so the church stepped in to fill that gap. And this, by the way, is where some of the proceeds of the property we saw in Acts 4 were going, right, to help the widows. We saw Barnabas in, in Acts chapter 4 selling this property and laying it at the apostles' feet and the, and the, the money at the apostles' feet. And the apostles then took that money and then helped in the daily distribution, turning some of that money into food, which they supplied for some of the widows. And, and uh, James calls this true religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That's true religion. It's to genuinely care for the, the lowest, the down and out, who, who need help. And really, this has always been the heart of God, to care for those in need, especially orphans and widows and also immigrants. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is a God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial to take and takes no bribe. Here it is. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. That's the immigrant in your midst who's not part of one of you. Different ethnic identity coming in you. He loves them, giving food and clothing to them. That's why Isaiah exhorted Israel, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And that's exactly what the church was doing. They were pleading the widow's cause. They were helping them in their daily allotment of food. They were feeding them. But some of them were being neglected, which brought on the complaint. L look again, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there were two groups of people in the early church. This is in the early Jewish church, by the way. Uh, and this is not even talking about when the Gentiles are coming into the church. This is the Jewish church. You had these two. You had the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hellenists are, are the Greek culture. The Hebrews were of the, the Jewish culture. The Hellenists were those who were increased by the, or influenced by the Greek culture of the day. They probably spoke Greek. They probably grew up apart from the synagogue and apart from religion. They're like secular Jews, if you will. They were probably educated in the secular schools of the day. But apparently then, these are widows who come to faith and come into the church from this sort of godless heritage or again, uh, lawless heritage, maybe. Uh, the Hebrews, on the other hand, were the Jewish people through and through. They spoke Aramaic. In school, they learned enough Hebrew to read and recite the Old Testament fully engaged in the religious culture of the Jews. Right, so, so you have these two sorts of people, the, those who are fully Jews and knew the, he knew the Torah, and then you had Gentiles, or not Gentiles, but they were more Hellenistic, Greek culture-influenced people. And, and you know, maybe we see a parallel like that in our church today. Right, so you've got these people who are, are grown up in church. Their parents were Christians, and their parents' parents were Christians, and their parents' parents' parents were Christians. And uh, they were homeschooled. They know the scripture from their youth. They memorized all the verses in Awana, got the Timothy Award, had social and family resources in place really then to help them. That would be like one group of people. And then you maybe have another group of people who were saved out of a godless background. 
Their parents were divorced, and maybe there was only mom at home. They went to public school knowing nothing of the Bible and without much support at home and, and uh, they, resources. They, they have struggled financially, and you just, you just create these two sorts of people. That's how we can relate. Maybe that's a little bit like what we're talking about here. And apparently in the church, there was some kind of natural division between these two. Enough so that when resources were limited, the Hellenists were neglected. They favored those who were, were in the Jewish culture and religion more. And um, those of the Hellenistic background rose up and they defended their widows. And at some point, the complaint read, uh, approach the apostles, and then responding in verse 2, I'm calling this the solution. Verses 2 through 7 is really the, the solution to the problem. To my outline, there's a problem, verse 1, solution coming up. And first off, the apostles said this, right? They, they gathered everyone together to address the situation, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. So the full number, right? This isn't tens of thousands, perhaps. I don't know what full number means. There's lots, lots of them. I don't know if this is the full number of everybody that would be unwieldy to do that, but the full number of these disciples came together and the apostles then said this, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, apparently, some, some had asked the apostles, right, this, this is a mess, right? We got the, the Hebrew widows and they're getting their food, but the Hellenistic widows are not getting their food. And why don't, why don't you just go in and can you take it over? Pastor, can you just start doing that job? Can you, start being, can you start being involved in leading the widow feeding operation, the WFO? Can you do that, please? And uh, maybe someone, whoever was doing that, wasn't doing a very good job. Maybe it's because no one was really doing that job. It just sort of happened and wasn't happening very well. Anyway, the apostles said, no, 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 we cannot take over this operation. Not because they were unwilling, not because they were incapable, but because of what it would cost them. It would cost them to give up preaching the Word of God. Now, that's totally consistent with what we see in the book of Acts. Throughout the growth and development of the early church, we've seen the apostles focus their attention upon preaching. And the Lord using their preaching as the primary means to bring people into the church. On Pentecost, it was Peter who stood up and preached and 3,000 were saved. And he continued to preach after the, the lame beggar was healed, and another 5,000 total were there. Other occasions, the religious authorities told them, stop preaching. They said, we can't. They said, stop preaching, we're going to beat you. And they couldn't. They need to obey God rather than men. And every day, verse 42, in the temple and from house to house, they kept preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The, the religious authorities couldn't stop them. And now here's a satanic influence, perhaps, that, that said, okay, well, administration of the church, is that going to stop you? Well, the administration of the church did not stop these apostles from doing what is right. It's very interesting, right? These good things pulling them. Administrating this, this program would be a, a good thing. But they said it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the Word of God to serve tables. And here's a typical battle, a battle you always face between the good and the best. Because that, that's a good thing. Serving tables is a good thing. It's honorable in the sight of God. It joins with the heart of God. It, it's true religion. And these apostles said, no, we can't do that true religion. That's a good thing. But in our circumstance, where we are today, in light of the whole church booming and what it is, they said, we can't. We, we, just, we can't do that. To do so would cost the best. Because the best is preaching the word of God. It was not right for the apostles to serve tables. 
They had to preach the gospel. They had to preach, preach about Jesus Christ. And as we have gone over, like we read in the Apostles' Creed today, Jesus Christ, he's the righteous and holy one who was before you. And you killed him and you put him on the cross. And he was buried, dead. But God raised him from the dead. And forgiveness of sins comes through faith in his name. That was a gospel that they preached over and over and over again. In Jesus is forgiveness of sins, so trust in him. So they said, we can't do that, but they had a solution. Their solution and their circumstance was this. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And their solution to this, this situation to the task was to ta- give people a task. They should find seven men capable of overseeing this task. It's, it's really the simple principle of, of delegation. Right? The apostles, like all of us, have limits, and they couldn't do it, so they sought to delegate some of their duties. I'm reminded of Moses when he was in a similar situation. Early on in the history of Israel, soon after they left Egypt, went to the promised land, they found, Moses just found that it was, it was too much for him. Day after day, people were coming to Moses with their problems, seeking insight from the Lord. And from morning till evening, Moses would hear their cases and would judge between them. By the way, this is, this is chapter 18 of Exodus. And, and, and soon after this, then he begins to codify the law. I mean, it, certainly it was God's idea to codify the law, but... From a practical standpoint, even there, like, like Moses hadn't written down things yet. He hadn't really taught the things yet. So really, practically, once you get the law, then you can just administer that law. But Moses was not in that situation. His father-in-law, Jethro, came by when he observed what was happening. I just read from Exodus chapter 18, 14 and following. Jethro th- said this, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me and inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do, which is actually coming soon after. Moreover, look for able men from all the people who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of ten. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses showed able men chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided among themselves. I mean, it's almost exactly what's going on in the early church. 
To, to serve tables would overly burden the apostles, wear them out, is too much for them, especially if they're trying to continue on with the ministry of the word. Instead, they needed to delegate. And, and the way Moses delegated, he took Jethro and he, he chose the men who were able and he, he installed them. And he said, you guys judge everyone. And it's just like our house, right? It's just like your house. We had a conversation over, um, uh, over a meal the other night in, in our home. We're talking about um, just finances, and uh, just how we manage finances and kind of just pull a random page of this book talking about the things that were not taught in schools, about how to handle your money. And one of them was just talking about just file folders for your bills and things like that. And, uh, and then Yvonne and I were just talking. And, um, you know, in our home, Yvonne does most of the financial things. It's not that I'm incapable of that. Um, we just just drive, we just understand that most of that. I do the taxes, however. And so we, we do some balance of that. And, and there's some balance of what happens in our house. And we went through some real practicals about how we delegate some things to the others. Not that one is better than the other. It just helps to, to broaden the task. And that's exactly what's happening here. Right? You're pointing men over the work to distribute the labor. Now, it's interesting here that there's even parallels, not just of delegation, but there's, there's a, a parallel here of the type of men to appoint over the labor. Certainly they had to be able to do the work, but they also must have character. Super important. Exodus chapter 18, verse 21. Jethro told Moses, look for able men from all the people, men who, one, fear God, second, who are trustworthy, and third, hate a bribe. If you're going to be judging people as they come with their cases, you, you need to fear God and understanding that you're, you're like it's merely a creature before God Almighty. That, that helps to be a good judge, is to fear God. Uh, these men must be trustworthy. That is, they must be dependable. Um, otherwise, Moses have to be continually dragged in their duties. Just, you're, you're trustworthy. Just, just do it. They'll learn it. Thirdly, they must hate a bribe. So important for all judges, lest justice fail if the bribe fails. And so likewise, the apostles identify certain character qualities that must be in place for those who, who serve tables. The apostles instructed people to search for this. Three characteristics. Seven men of good repute, full of spirit, and full of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. So, right, good repute, full of spirit, full of wisdom. A good repute, that's reputation. They must be well thought of by others. When their name is mentioned, others must smile. Um, Others must think of them well as solid, hardworking people who are dependable. See, the apostles didn't want to just put anybody in charge of the task of serving tables, even if they could get the job done. They needed to have those who had a pattern of dealing well with others so they could do that job. The second character quality here the apostles mentioned must be full of the Spirit. They must be believers in Christ. That is, right, beyond that, I think there's a, an evidence of the Spirit. Right? The Spirit is in them working out in their lives. And what's the Spirit produced in their lives? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the sorts of things that are necessary when you serve others. Because when you serve others, right, complaints and gripes and problems and difficulties will come. And you need to respond with gentleness and joy. That's why you need to be full of the Holy Spirit. And finally, these men need to be full of wisdom. That is, they need to be able to navigate life, navigate the complexities that come. 
Right? Be able to manage people, be able to manage things, solve problems on their own, have a measure of independence so they wouldn't have to go to the apostles repeatedly for counsel. Well, how do, how do we serve this, this widow? How do we serve these widows? Or what, we're lacking in supplies. We're lacking in this. Like, like enough that they can, with the wisdom, figure it out for themselves. That's interesting. These character qualities are, are a lot like the character qualities for deacons. Paul, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, puts forth character qualities for those needed. Listen to some of them. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let deacons each be husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul speaks about how deacons must have a good reputation in dealing with people, right? Being dignified, truthful, and honest. Paul says they must be, have a solid Christian tense testimony, right? Be filled with the Spirit, holding fast the mystery of the faith. Paul says they need to have wisdom to manage their children and their households. And I think it's no qualification, the, the, no accident these qualifications pretty much line up. Um, because like, Paul is putting forth these men, or, or Peter's putting forth the apostles, the congregation is putting forth these men. These are like the, the budding basis for the diaconate, for deacons in the church. They're not deacons in the official sense of the word. They're never called deacons in Acts chapter 6. But they're doing what deacons do. In fact, the word deacon is a servant. And these men are, are called to serve tables. They're called to deacon tables. That's why I call these men proto-deacons. They're setting forth a budding pattern of leadership in a church, though maybe not fully developed, starting to. Kind of giving a hint about what leadership in the church will be like. And as the New Testament develops, like in the church today, there's elders and there are deacons. There are two offices. And the elders focus primarily upon uh, spiritual matters, and the deacons primarily upon physical matters. And, and, and the elders are also called pastors, overseers, they're like the apostles. And the deacons are like these seven men appointed in verse 6. And if you want a job description for the elders, we've kind of seen the deacons, the elders, that comes in verse 4. Look what's written in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So Steve, what, what's your job description as a pastor? What is it that you do? Well, this is my calling. I can say, Steve Brandon exists to devote myself to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's, that's what I'm called to do. I'm called to pray. I'm called to preach. Now, prayer manifests itself in, in many different ways. It could be private prayer, which is the basis for all prayer. It's public prayer, Sunday mornings, when going to someone's house, praying over the phone. I'm called to pray every moment of the day, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. I'm called to spend some, spend some seasons in prayer. I'm called to pray for you. I'm called to pray for um, my unsaved neighbors. I'm called to pray for family members. I'm called to pray for God's kingdom to come. It requires time and it requires effort. And it's what the apostles were not willing to ditch in order to serve tables. And I'll just say this, when a pastor truly understands what he can and cannot do, he'll be driven to prayer, especially in light what he's called to do. Like I, I have, by the way, I'm not, I have an impossible job. Hear that. My job is impossible because I'm called to do what only God can do. And the only way I can fulfill my duty is to pray and ask God to do what only he can do as I try to do what he is calling me to do. Uh, listen to what John Piper says about this. I, I love this. He says, brothers, speaking to pastors, he says, 
the proper goals of the life of a pastor are unquestionably beyond our reach. The changes we long for in the hearts of our people can only happen by a sovereign work of grace. Salvation is a gift of God. Love is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. Wisdom is a gift of God. Joy is a gift of God. Yet we as pastors must labor to save some, 1 Corinthians 9.22. We must stir up people to love. We must advance their faith. We must impart wisdom. We must work for their joy. We are called to labor for that which is God's alone to give. The essence of Christian ministry is that its success is not within our reach. A cry for help from a heart of a childlike pastor is sweet praise in the ears of God. Prayer is the translation into a thousand different words of a single sentence. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Pastoring is trying to do what we can do, and we know that apart from Christ, we can do none of that. So that's prayer. It's what the apostles called themselves to. It's what a pastor, full-time pastor, is called to do. Also, we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the Word. And the ministry of Word is, is really varied, too. Like, like prayer comes in all, all times, shapes, and, and facets, and who you're praying for, what you're praying for. The ministry of the Word, too. I'm called to preach Sunday mornings and teach you all. I'm called to preach and teach in various discipleship settings that I have throughout the week, whether it's group settings or whether it's individual settings, and I have various groups like that set up, but I'm called also to, to counsel those who might call uh, quickly from the Word of God, giving a spiritual perspective that, that's administering the Word of God. I'm called to do the work of an evangelist, right? spreading the Word as, as really an example for all of you about we all should do this, placing the, the gospel at the forefront. I, I have in my mind, I, this is the way I live, is the gospel is in the forefront of my mind. Every conversation I have, uh, particularly with outside people, I want to do what I can to speak the gospel. That's why I spoke this lady with the dog. That's why I mentioned Jesus. It wasn't accidental that I mentioned Jesus. I could have said, oh, we're just solving the world's problems. Okay, go along. But I had to like, I wanted to incorporate the gospel in there. That, that's what it means to minister the word. I want to begin with Jesus. If you've been interested, we may have got to the point about forgiveness and repentance and faith. But she just blew us off right away, so that was nowhere there. But I, I try to do the work of an evangelist. I'm called to write. I write sermons. I'm called to write wherever I could, whether it's blog posts, whether it's books I've written from time to time. Even, I, I believe, a note of encouragement can be a ministry of the Word as it just gets the Word continue out of there. I'm called to take the Word of God, bring it to bear upon our lives, However, I can make that happen. And that requires time, requires devotion, dedication. Paul instructed Timothy in his pastoral duties, 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Right? Be devoted to it. In fact, that's the same thing that they said here in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Paul told Timothy to preach the Word in season and out of season, always being ready to rebuke, exhort, with patience and instruction requires time, requires practice, requires being immersed. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. As a result of these things, by the way, I've worked really hard to really focus my attention upon the things that I am called to do. There are many things that are to be done here and around the church, and I'm willing to do them all. 
But like the apostles, I'm not called for that. That will distract and that will hurt everyone. Like think about it. If the apostles devoted themselves to serving tables, like where the evangelism, the spreading of the word, where would that go? And I would say in many liberal churches, that's, that's, the, that's the, um, the hinge that happens, is that rather than becoming proclaimers and teachers of the word of God, pastors become ministers of the sacraments. They become visitors of the sick, and they, that's, they focus all their attention upon there rather than upon teaching, and then churches go liberal. Why? Because they've lost that prophetic voice, that voice of truth. And so it's not that I'm, that I'm unwilling to mow the lawn, or clean the building, or deal with the finances of the church, or make repairs around the building, or be in charge of the audio-visual stuff, or, or play the instruments at church, or administer every program in church. I'm not, I'm not against those things. I just know that what I have to do to keep a focus of where, where things are. I'm called to minister the Word of God to you all, to equip you all to do the work of service in the life of the church, Ephesians 4, 12. And it's my hope in that that you are pleased to come alongside of me and the other elders right in this task and and you have been for so many years and i'm so thankful that you've been pleased to help me with that and in fact that's what we see we see the congregation being pleased with the plan of what they set forth they said okay we've got to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word we can't do this but you get seven people to appoint that will point over this task and and they were pleased what they said pleased the whole congregation verse five and they chose Stephen, the man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. Seven men from the congregation who had a good reputation, who were full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Now, maybe there were more in the congregation who could do that. I, I think there were. Um, but these were seven who were chose to take this Opportunity. We know a lot about Stephen. Uh, in fact, next week uh, we're going to begin in, in verse 8, looking at Stephen, who is full of grace and full of power, doing wonders and great signs. We'll, we'll find out about Stephen. Um, he's going to preach the longest sermon in all the book of Acts in chapter 7. And he dies the quickest death of anyone in the book of Acts, being stoned to death, full of faith for sure. We know about Philip. We'll see him in Acts chapter 8. In fact, he's got like almost the whole chapter. He begins to spread the gospel to Samaria and then to Judea. And so the whole outline, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, about being my witnesses both in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria. Really, it, it was Philip who began that thrust in Acts chapter 8. who was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. But the rest of them, Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, if I pronounce their names even correctly, um, we don't know anything about them. We know their names, which, which is interesting. All the names are Greek, which means that there was some sensitivity, I'm, I'm sensing on the part of the apostles, to appoint those who had a vested interest, particularly in the Greek widows who were being neglected. And so they appointed the Greek, Greek men to take care of this. And so they set them before the apostles, and the apostles then obliged, prayed, and laid their hands on them. And at this point, we see this crisis in the early church solved. This is how they, they chose to solve the, the situation at hand, and the church then was at peace. We hear no more in the book of Acts about these widows and the daily distribution of food. Apparently, these men did a good job. It didn't come up again, and in that, we can rejoice. And one indication of uh, how the apostles then were free to fulfill their, their ministries. 
comes there in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see, the word of God continuing to increase because you got these men devoting themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And before I close, let me just one, one comment here of application. We have elders have really been thinking about our leadership team, really been praying about expanding our leadership team, especially as it relates to deacons. So you can just pray for us in that process. We're praying and thinking about those who might fulfill that role. So let's, let's pray before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, I do thank you just seeing the wisdom of these apostles and seeing how the problems have come upon the church and how they have navigated those so well. So when persecution comes, they were so committed to be bold with the gospel, they kept right on preaching despite the cost of what it meant for them. Verbal rebuke and physical torture right? being beaten, they continued right on. And that way the church continued to grow and be strengthened with Ananias and Sapphira. They had the discernment to discern the, the hypocrisy of these people and to call them out. And, and with that wisdom and solving that problem, O oh Lord, you bless the church in great ways. And so likewise in here, O oh, oh God, as we see this problem in the early church and we see the, uh, the, the, the lack of, of people to be able to support the widows. Um, God, how you just saw fit that these apostles dealt with that situation masterfully. They... They put forth a, a way in which to, um, to solve the problem, a way which pleased the people and pleased them, and, and then the church continued to grow and multiply. And Lord, I would pray that you would give like wisdom to us leaders of church, that when problems arise, I pray they'd come from people who are overall super encouraging <clears throat> and super affirming. God, that when we see them and hear them, we know their heart behind people. They're not just looking to nitpick, and, but they, they, they care. And God, that we might be able to see and, and navigate problems in such a wise way, Father, for the unity and the peace of the church um, in days and years to come. Oh, oh God, we need your grace. We need you and your mercy to be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.